0: Okay, so once again, thank you all for coming. Genuinely, it's late and uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that easy to come to, to have your mind focused at this time of the evening, especially as it's dark outside. Um, last, week, last week, we just started, we began and we opened with a kozari And just to give a, a short recap, we spoke about the nature of Yehuda Yehudah Levi's style of writing and the fact that it approached both the emotional side as well as the intellectual side of our being being a philosopher and a poet, it being written in a dialogue, which means it's like a bit of a story. We're invited to be part of the story because it's a dialogue. When you read a dialogue, it's not only you hearing two people having a chat, they know you're there. Not really, because they're dead and it was a long, long time ago. But when a person writes a dialogue, they know someone's listening. They know someone's taking part by observing the dialogue taking place. So how a dialogue takes place, you as a listener have to be taken into account. And the classic example I give to that is that there is a certain point in the book where the relationship between the king and the rabbi changes. The king converts. The story of the king of the Khazars is that there's a king that is convinced to convert to Judaism. And he converts at the beginning of the book. The Rabbi Huda even knew that was gonna happen. He knew we would read it. And he knows that there's a point he's gonna give over that we can ascertain. A very, very superficial answer to such a question is that no longer are we talking about one person inside Judaism and the other person outside Judaism having a conversation. We now change the dynamic of the story to two people inside Judaism. So me as a, a reader, I know that. So I really frame the conversation differently. That's the beauty of a dialogue. That's why in, well, not in those days, but people wrote in dialogue because it allows you to draw the reader in, in a way that just giving a whole bunch of information doesn't. We then opened up the book and we spoke about the king. And what's the story? The king has a dream. An angel appears to the king. And we spoke about the, the, the importance of each stage of the description of the dream. It's a king? Why a king? A dream? Why a dream? It's supposed to be a recording of something that happened, but it wasn't. He made it up. It was had historical precedence, but he chose each of these tropes to use. Why did he choose them? And we get to ask those questions because he could have easily opened up the story of the Khazars. the king had a servant. And the servant had a dream. Well, he could have done that. Nothing was stopping him doing that. The fact that he chose to do that, we can ask that question. Why a dream? Why does an angel appear to me? The angel says, your intentions are good, but your actions are not good. And this happens again and again, not just once, again and again. Once again, you get that reflective of the, the searcher, the seeker's life. That knocking that goes on the door. That cognitive dissidence. That 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 um, what's the word? When you when you experience something and something's not right, that can either be because you, as we mentioned, in the story of Abraham, the idea of the uh, world that is and the world that should be, distorts you, and you want to you want to find a solution to that. But also in people's life of searching, when people are searching, some people want to dampen down that desire to know truth. And they just get on with life and you can easily dumb down that searching part of you. You can, I, I've got the, the best way it's put to me. is like people who are either people who are religious or people who became religious, people who are religious. When I, when I'm uh, having a discussion with someone about like areas like this, they I go, Oh yeah, I, I dealt with all that when I was younger. Like you what? And I dealt with all the philosophical stuff of Judaism when I'm younger, I'm good now. I think they're crazy. I don't know. So what do you mean? You're good now. You're not the same person you were when you were six. You look at the world differently now. It means your questions should be different. You can numb it. Like I dealt with my philosophical questions. I now just do. I'm like, shouldn't philosophical questions follow you your whole life? Hopefully I will read the Kuzari in a different way when I'm 60, when I've got that, hopefully, richness of experience behind me that I don't have now. You constantly learn. That's By the way, that's one of the scary things about being a teacher. When I taught, sometimes I, I listen to my Shurim or my podcast that I give, and I'm like, actually, that's not bad. But sometimes <laughs> it's very embarrassing. I'm like, I didn't think I said that. with such confidence as well when I said it. It's a bit embarrassing because I grew. Same in philosophy. You want to your experience of Judaism to be constantly be updated and enriched because you're a different person. But you can numb that down. You can get on with life and get busy. And the, the knock keeps coming. Or well, the dream, the angel keeps coming. Yes. If you spend an hour every morning trying to decide if you believe in God or if you should even bother going anymore. You're never going to get further than that. Uh, spend just as much time thinking as you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to repeat the question because that was the critique I got from a bunch of people through it. if 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 you're if you're encouraging philosophical inquiry, it's going to be a point where you stop otherwise how'd you live? Absolutely right there's obviously gonna be a balance. There's a balance between having your foundations and working on your foundation to be able to solidify a certain foundation that from that point, you can grow. And from that point, when you get there, you grow more. That doesn't mean you reanalyze your uh, base assumptions every day. It means that you're, you solidify certain things to an extent. At times you may revisit things, but not, obvious, not obviously the whole time when you need to be functional, but there are certain things you will constantly revisit to improve upon. Think for example, you mentioned the example of God. Hopefully, through our journey through the Khazari, what we mean by God will change, the opening of the second part, he starts talking about negative theology, not describing God in the positive. In a second, in a second, in about three minutes, we're gonna open up with the first chap the king interrogates. And for a lot of people, the way he opens up is a bit bit jarring for the average religious person because the philosopher starts describing Judaism and God and starts describing God in a way that we haven't often heard. We get that would be like, whoa, now, does that mean when I read something that's a bit jarring, <coughs> I reanalyze all my presuppositions every time? No, obviously not, because you're right, you wouldn't be able to function, but there is a certain updating you always want to do. That's why people have a, 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 a time of their day or a time of their week even, where they learn areas of makshava where they learn Jewish philosophy, not proving the, the very, the, the first the points, the first points, the, the, the belief in the idea of God. But what you mean by God may change as time goes on. What you mean by belief may change as time goes on. You keep the things that are good, but you burn away the things that are good. So you grow constantly. It's, it's an interesting way of putting it, like a, um, the, the two things that are, the two biggest dangers to truth, the idea of truth, uh, I think we mentioned this last time that the two most dangerous principles or approaches a person can take is skepticism and dogmatism. Skepticism is there's no truth. Relativism, there's no truth. Everything's just up in the air. There's no truth. The other is I found it. If you found it and you're not willing to budge, you'll never grow. Growth requires a certain unsureness, which isn't the word. I'm sure either way. No. Yes, Oh, yes. I guess it could be I don't know if this is a good thing, but sometimes it could be a bit It's like if you don't believe this, then but it's not the same thing principles of interest. Like if you don't believe this, you don't get to own how so you're scared Interesting. Very good, very good, very good. And uh, by the way, uh, just repeat the question. Um the few giving give can at times sound oppressive because if you don't believe things, you're out and we discussed earlier, which isn't what well, we're not gonna do right now, is that how that sort of approach, which might seem oppressive, is also based off, first of all, the difference between how the Rambam describes the Yungo Mir Karim in Hilchas Tshuva, as opposed to other places, which are more philosophical, and that one's more halachic. also in terms of how it was approached by other thinkers, but also by what he means by Olam Habah. To move on to your point is that yes, people do find the idea of questioning their worldview to be quite scary, because what happens if I question something, and I realise I don't believe it anymore. There is a scary, there is there is a fear to that, and a person may say, I I, I find it safer not to think about it, and I'm not going to judge. Every man, every man and woman and child to themselves, to, every man, woman and child to themselves. Everybody can do their best. Everyone should do their best. And a person can say, Listen, I from I, I get really an, I get anxiety ridden when I think about these things, and it, I become paralysed. Then in which case, don't. Obviously not. You also have to live. And what I'm describing here is not something I do every day. There's obviously a fear involved, and there's probably places that I don't go to because I'm scared. There's probably certain philosophical roads I don't go down. I can't think of them off the cuff, but there's probably areas I don't go because maybe I'm too scared to go there. So I do recognize that's definitely part of the journey. And maybe when I'm older, more mature, maybe I would go there. But that's the same for everybody. So it's definitely a a, a point that is well taken. Um, So now we're going to open up with the king. The king, we discussed, now he invites his first chap in. The king is seeking a worldview. Why is he seeking a worldview? Because he had the knock on the door by the angel. And he's going to introduce his first candidate. We're gonna have four candidates, more and more as time goes on because there's the Karaites. But in essence, we've got the king who interrogates a philosopher, a Christian, a Muslim, and then a Jew. To ruin the excitement for just a second, the philosopher. He allows to have his say, and we're gonna look at what the philosopher says to see how this scientist, and it's a good way of describing him as a scientist, because in those days, philosophy and science weren't that different. I mean, they weren't different at all. You had natural philosophers. They were the scientists of the day. This was the worldview that people took, the way the philosophers describing the world. It's like, in a weird way, it's like science of today. Not that they have any similarities from a scientific standpoint, but the basis that if you want to know what people's basic philosophy is from a, uh, Western point of view, science holds a big prominence in our lives. A very high level of authority. You saw that played out in the pandemic. It was for for good reason. People, in America, it was obviously a bit more complicated, but people listened to the science. The science was telling people it's dangerous (coughs) and people listened. In which case you have a situation where a philosophy, as in a way of categorizing and structuring the world can have a lot of prominence. In Rabbi Yehuda Ali's time, it was a combination of Neoplatonism and Aristotelianism as interpreted by the Arabic philosophers. We're gonna go into it slightly, not too much because we don't wanna get bogged down in ancient metaphysics, but some of it's gonna be worthy discussing for our purposes. But this is the, let's call it, this is almost the dogma of the time. But it's important to point out when Rabbi Yehuda Ali has allowed the philosopher to say his piece, he doesn't disagree with him as in, prove him wrong. And that's important to point out. The king will respond, and Rabbi Huda Alevi as the rabbi will respond, but the response the king gives to the philosopher, this whole structure of approaching the world through your intellect, the king responds to the philosopher? That's lovely, but I had a dream, and an angel spoke to me and told me I'm not doing something right. The way the philosopher describes what a person should do, he doesn't really care what you do. He doesn't dismantle the philosopher. He doesn't prove the philosopher wrong. And that's important to point out because Rabbi Huda Halevi isn't in the business of showing that philosophy is stupid. He's going to try and show us that philosophy is not the way you'll find ultimate meaning in life. Philosophy, in abstraction, in terms of the the philosopher here, is not going to lead you to meaning and religion and purpose. But it doesn't mean it's silly. And that is reflective of our time. We can experience the world through the lens of science. But if you want science to give you a purpose, if you want science to give you morality, if you want science to give you an ought or a reason to be, you're gonna be very lost because it won't give you one. Science and philosophy in this respect, well, as far as Rabbi our lady is concerned, it will, will, will tell us how we can approach the world, but not give you ultimate meaning, even though the philosopher actually does a good job of it, far better than a scientist of today would be able to do because they were already more gaudy than the science of today is. But in a similar way, when we approach science today, we respect and appreciate the scientific worldview but we don't go to it for our meaning. We don't go to it for our purpose. Do we hear the distinction? The distinction between meaning and utility. Science gives us utility. Science doesn't give us purpose. In a similar way, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's king approach responds to the philosopher, not by dismantling him, but by saying, that's great, but I had a dream. That's once again, he's not proving anything here. He's allowing the philosopher to stay, but he's saying it's not answering my question. I have an existential angst, I'm looking for purpose. I'm looking for meaning. You aren't providing me with that. But what he actually says the philosopher is going to be very useful to us. And that's why Yuhudaleh gives him quite a, uh, a, a a a speech. Okay, who'd like to read? Go for it, please. Um, from he inquired of a philosopher concerning his religious, yeah. He of a philosopher concerning religious persuasion. There is no favor or dislike in the nature of God because he is above desire and intention. A desire intimates a want in the person who feels it, and not till it is satisfied does he become, so to speak, complete. If it remains unfulfilled, he lacks completion. Excellent. He is now describing God. Remember, this is a philosopher here. He's using our language. He's describing God. I think I'm going to read it, but pay attention because if I start reading something that's not there, definitely correct me. Just because of the audio, I realise that people wouldn't be able to hear it from from there. So if I if I start reading something that's not there, just be, uh, <laughs> feel free to correct me. Um, but thank you. Exactly. We've just read the philosophy. Just to read a bit more, God therefore does not know you, much less your thoughts and actions, nor does he listen to your prayers or see your movements. Okay. So so just to just give you. This, what we're gonna do here, this is a really, a really useful structure to use by a, a, a Rabbi Shalom Rosenberg, Rosenberg, he's a professor in Hebrew U who uses an idea from a, um, a, uh, a 19th century Jewish philosopher, Jewish philosopher called Franz Rosenzweig. He gives us a star. And this star is, is, is a, a, a beautiful map to be able to pin onto it really interesting philosophical ideas, and we'll come back to it the whole time. He draws for us a star. He puts God here, he puts man here, and a woman and the world here. These three, any philosophical system you will deal with that's approaching the world in a complete sense has to address these three points. The philosopher has discussed God. Just to finish off the, the structure he gives, he gives another triangle which he calls creation, revelation, and (laughs) And the reason why this is uh, quite cool, is that the relationship between creation and revelation is God, the relationship between God and man is revelation, and the relationship between man and the world is redemption, where the world is going. It's quite a clever structure. And any philosophical system will be taking apart one of these ideas or disagreeing with the relationship between one of these points. And why it's super cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he gave theological content to a symbol that we didn't really know where it came from. He's not saying this is why it's like this. He's saying it's, 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 he was able to give it with this a, a, a meaning with this structure. So just move that part away just for the the board, you can probably look anywhere online and i will show you this uh, this structure. For now, the philosopher's describing God. How does the philosopher describe God? God is perfect. Let me ask you this, you are all Jews, is God perfect? Yeah, for sure. And the philosopher will say, really? Your God's perfect? Does God know you? Of course he does. So before you were born, God didn't know you. Well, no. I mean, God's perfect, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, definitely God's perfect. In which case, who is God before you were born? And who's he after you were born? The philosopher saying, my conception of God is way purer than yours. You consider yourself monotheists, but you're like a dirty monotheist. Your God changes. Your God knows particulars. My God is perfect. When I say God, doesn't know that you pray to it. There's an ant somewhere down the road, probably. Do you care? No, no one cares. If all ants disappeared, you'd care. But the particular ant? No, of course you don't care, it's just so beyond you. Not because you're limited, just because it's just a different world. The philosopher's saying, that's what my God is. My God doesn't care about you, not because he's evil, just because that's not that the idea of God is limiting. God is imperfect. If He is lacking, in ancient um, metaphysics, they, they, we use this language the whole time: potentiality and actuality. Things in potential. I am potentially well. Something of the potential I have. I have. I have the potential of giving a class. Until I've given the class, I haven't lived out that potential yet. That potential remains. Inexistent, but it hasn't been actualized yet. What is more perfect? That which has been actualized or that which still lies in potential? Obviously that which has been actualized. He looks at God as being completely actualized. When you learn something new, you could say, oh, I now know that, yay. To say that about God is pretty insulting, no? So the way the philosopher opens up, and this is what I mean about challenging what we mean by Hashem, we often say Hashem is perfect. The Rabbi Hud Ali is challenging that. God is that perfect? He knows you. Isn't that an imperfection? Yeah. I'm wondering is the king not as easy as the philosopher after he's already converted? No, no, no. He's still, in a way, genuinely searching. He hasn't met the Jew yet. Wait, what what makes God imperfect by knowing us? Change implies imperfection, simply speaking. Before he knew you, because you didn't always exist, did you? you? There was a stage where you weren't here. In which case, what state was God in before you were here? In stage X. Now you're here. Is there a difference? Now God knows you. But you knew everything was going to happen to me and I was going to be born before. Yeah. So there's no change. So God doesn't know you any differently now than when you pray. Does God change? No. So God doesn't change. In which case, what does your prayer do? It changes you. Does God react to you differently? You kind of must I think. Know, in- yeah. So you don't have. To, so there's no free will then. But that's but, but no, that, that literally is this thing. He, he's. By the way, most questions, most questions when people go theological, they're often. Um, the Khiri adir is like the big thing. That's the big thing. But, th- but simply speaking, without getting like, digging too deep in that rabbit hole, the question that he's asking is, let's let's admit that this challenges us to an extent. It makes us think, I think we can agree that if we start thinking about God as being perfect, and we start talking about the philosopher who has, and then we, so we spoke about God. Now let's talk about the world. If a philosopher says that he created thee, they mean that as a metaphor, because he is the cause of, of causes and in the creation of all creations, creatures, but not because this was his intention from the beginning. He never created man, but the world is without beginning. He believed in the eternity of the universe. There was no creation. This was again, the whole thing is why the structure is so cool. This isn't there. There's no creation. God didn't create man doesn't create the world god is this perfect being that always existed and the universe has always existed along with god as well you jew say creation that's a bit of a what? so what was before god created the universe that's that you can't use that sort of language right you can't talk about before time excellent but to say god created means god acted that's a change how does, that, how does that change him? It doesn't have to necessarily change him, but it means God did something he hadn't done before. If you want to say creation from nothing, you are on some level have to say God acted, or God did, or God chose. We that that very phrase, the philosophers are already throwing up theologically. That's disgusting. Uh, theologically, not like icky, but like don't talk about God like that. God is this perfect being. It, the world has always been here. People bring arguments for the fact that the universe must have had a creator. Most of time people thought the universe had always been here. From a philosophical standpoint, clearly, Aristotle believed the universe had always been here. From a scientific standpoint, they also believed the universe had always been here. The idea that the Big Bang and the Red Ship was a, was a new phenomenon. It was known as the steady state theory or the steady state model, and the universe had just been. Once we saw the universe was expanding, that was like a big deal, and religious people loved it. Clearly, because expanding means Sorry. started. But that wasn't the going wisdom at the time. The wisdom at the time like, steady state, it's just been here. Now, as I said, we're going to have answers and we're going to have responses. And we're going to give responses because we're going to talk about what we mean by a need. When I say I need something, what do I need? I'm hungry. I need to, I lack something, and I want to eat this new bumper that they just came out with to satiate that need because <laughs> I'm lacking. When we say need in God, we don't mean it like that. And we'll discuss that, but we have to immerse ourselves in the question because the point of bringing the philosophers up on a certain level is going to challenge us to carry on. In the perfect person, a light of divine nature called the active intellect is with him and his passive intellect is so closely connected therein, therewith, that both are but one. I'll explain what he means by this. The person of such perfection thus observes that he and just for the record of the recording, I'm not reading everything out, is the active intellect uh, that he is the active intellect himself. And there is no difference between them. Then you will reach the goal of union with the spiritual or rather the active intellect. Maybe then he will communicate with you or teach you knowledge of what is hidden and uh, true uh, true dreams and positive visions. Now the philosopher is giving us his God. This is worth speaking about. The philosopher is giving us a coherent worldview. A scientist of today couldn't do what the philosopher did. Because remember, the philosopher has given us a God. He's given us an ultimate existence. The world of science today doesn't do that. It doesn't talk about ultimate existences. That's the world of religion and metaphysics. The world that we experience of science today is very objective. It doesn't talk about essences, doesn't talk about the true nature of reality. Our philosopher is, and this is why you can see that he's giving you a coherent worldview. He's presenting the king with a way of looking at the world. He described God, he described the world. I'm in the same structure here. He described the world. The world has always been here. It's a natural emanation of what we mean by God. That person can say, okay, then what am I supposed to do? What's my goal? He says, your goal is to connect to the active intellect. Now we have to, I'm going to do this really because, but it's worth doing. Ancient cosmology or the ancient way of looking at the world. What's the big question of spiritual people? How does God who's there connect to, how do I exist in the world of the mystics? They call it simson that retraction. How do you make that jump? People always have an issue with this. So much of philosophy and theology is trying to deal with this question of how do you bridge the gap from the transcendent to the terrestrial world? Our philosopher in the lines of Aristotle, Plato and the um, Arabic philosophers had a certain structure of the, ria- of the world we live in. The Rambam had something very similar. If you open up the Torah, he'll describe something very similar. And if any, philosophy professors are listening, they'll probably get very upset, but in a very basic way, they looked at the idea that there was this ultimate source called God. It wasn't a dude, it was a purely spiritual being. Let's mm-hmm. use our language from before, it was total um, realization, total, not potential, that which had been actualized, so they the actualized, actualizer. Nothing was dormant, everything was, Perfect. This then comes down, and then there's a, a celestial sphere. We would call those planets, but they looked at the world as having these like spheres, because if you look at it from their point of view, it is kind of funky that these planets floating around places. It's like really <laughs> weird. They looked at those as being, and by the way, it's an important point to point out, when we talk about the Rambam, the Rambam didn't let people talk about the Rambam being a rationalist. The Rambam wasn't a rationalist like we're rationalists. Like we say rationalist, we mean a scientist. The Rambam looked at the world as being like alive with inter- intelligences. Like the celestial fears were spiritual beings. They were in some way perfect. We don't look at it, we see rocks. But that doesn't mean this, this whole approach is useless. We may look at it as being a bit silly, but there's there's a, a truth that they're trying to give over. Now this spiritual energy comes down in spheres. If anybody hears the language very familiar. There are spheres. This is, and by the way, you know, I said that Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi is going to be the, the source for so many ideas that we see crop up in Judaism. Sure. Mm-hmm. You'll see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. The spheres. Now, this, as I said, you, you, you. Um, and then uh, without getting into all the names of the different spheres, all these are controlled by angels. And when they say angels, they don't mean flappy uh, Christian angels. They mean angels as in intelligences. And this makes its way down from the God little g, because it's not necessarily like a a personality, but the the ultimate source works its way down till the active intellect. All these are separate intellects. They're intellects as in purely spiritual beings that flew down from God in a purely spiritual way. Until one point, the sphere of the moon. What's the closest sphere to us? The moon. So they looked at the moon as being the last sphere between us and the active intellect. The active intellect gave over pure spiritual potential, uh, pure spiritual actuality. The moon on the other hand, is the first introduction of matter. Matter is potential. This is a bit weird, but just bear with me. Matter is potential. That's what matter is. Matter has not been realized. That's why when you have an object, a brick, it hasn't been had its potential lived out until you built it into a house. Matter is that non-spiritual stuff. Because once again, we ask that question is how do spiritual systems make that jump? How do spiritual systems make that jump from God to stuff? It's a problem. How does God become non-God? Because that's what we mean by creation on some level. That which isn't God. How do the philosophers make sense of our material world? Every spiritual system is going to grapple with this question. The philosopher's answer is the move. We don't have to look at it as the as the, the rock in the sky, but there was something that lays between that introduces to our reality matter. Matter is potential. You still have that which comes down from the active intellect, which is, leads you back up here. So by way of the goal of the philosopher, here's me. When I see something in the world or I um, I see things in the world, I realize something in my mind. My passive intellect, my mind, once again, the, for, for a philosopher, the most spiritual side of you, and not only for a philosopher, also for us today, if you try and think of the most spiritual side of you, what comes to mind? You could think your emotions maybe, your intellect, your mind, your reason. There's a reason why they looked at the reason as being the most, uh, Spiritual, it's because it's like, it works. There's something ethereal about it. There's something perfect about reason, mathematics. You actualize your potential? By actualizing my passive potential, I connect to the active intellect. And when I can do that, what am I doing? I'm making my way up. My actualizing, my passive intellect, my mind, which is dormant with so much potential, when I actualize it, I connect to this. When I connect to this, I make my way up. Thereby, I become directly connected to ultimate reality. That's the goal of a philosopher. That's the goal that the philosopher's introducing to the king. I not only have a conception of God, I not only have a conception of the world, I have a goal. And then once you're connected to ultimate reality, Once again, this sounds familiar. What are we trying to do as religious people? Take whatever religion you want. You're trying to connect to God. He's describing the same process here. It's slightly secular, but he's describing the same process. He's he's giving you a purpose. We're gonna discuss how Judaism will respond to this, but this is the structure he's painting out. Questions, you had a question? A way of another way of looking at it is it's what's called an epistemology. Epistema in Greek means knowledge. Epistemology is how you understand the world. How they understood the world or how they understood you gained knowledge is that you had your intellect, your mind, didn't look at it as your brain, your mind saw something in the world, a particular instance of a tree, at which point that knowledge was actualized in you. You were then that potential knowledge became actualized. It was then potential, it was actualized. That process connects you to the act of intellect. To the point where you either perfect yourself to the nth degree, where you are just connected, you then work in you are then become a channel for divine energy. You, you, how do I over this? You've got the example of a, um, uh, the end, so let's get, you'll see this idea crop up. We we, we speak about within Judaism. You ever had the idea that you're in the womb and when you're in the womb, you learn the whole tire mm-hmm. and the angel flicks you and you forget it all. People say, what's the point? Why do I have to? The, the potential's always there. So you see these ideas, these ideas are foundational to to world spirituality. This is the philosopher presenting his worldview now. So the philosopher gave us a God, the philosopher philosopher gave us a world, and the philosopher gave us a goal. So far, so good? Okay, we're gonna leave that on the board. (laughs) The next person comes in tomorrow. Okay, if you have reached, just the the last section here, if you have reached such disposition of belief, Uh, Be not concerned about the form of your humility or uh, religion or worship or word or language or actions you employ. You may even choose a religion. Now, he's talking about the means. I need to do this to get there in a world that has always been. How do I do that? Just how you gain knowledge. How do you go about actualizing your potential? You can't sit in in a box. And actualize your potential, you have to experience the world. You have to think about things and thereby you actualize your intellect. But to actualize your intellect, how do I do that? What's the means that just to put it into Jewish language, I could put this in, I need to make the to make us. I need to connect to Hashem. In a world that God created, how do I do that? The Tyre, excellent. Philosopher, how do I connect to God? He says actually, to be honest with you, it doesn't really matter. You have to perfect yourself because an arrogant person can't be objective. This is true as well. You'll see once again, you'll see the parallels. We talk about the importance of working on your uh, Midas because you want to be like Hashem. You've got a massive difference from what he's describing, working on your, your Midas, but his point isn't wrong. He says you have to work on your Midas, your, your purity, your humility, but not as it ends in of it itself. I become a humble person because I'm copying Hashem. I'm I've become a gracious person, a chesed person, because I'm mirroring Hashem to an extent. That is the end. I'm trying to be like God. He says you have to purify yourself and have to be humble, but not because you're trying to. No, because you want to actualize your intellect. An arrogant person, an angry person, cannot actualize their intellect, because they're angry and they're not objective. And they don't look at the world through the most objective lens because they're yelling at everyone. And how do I do that? So to be honest with you, it's the most, he's the most uh, what's the word? He's a hardcore religious pluralist. Doesn't actually make a difference in his words. Um, you can even choose a religion in the way of humility, worship and benedictions for the management of your temperament, your house and the people of your country, if they agree to it or fashion your religion according to the laws of reason set up by philosophers and strive to after purity of soul. He doesn't care about the form of the religion. As long as you do it, it doesn't make a difference. As long as it achieves my goal, that's the philosopher. That's the world of philosophy from the point of view of of Yehuda HaLevi's introduction. Once again, next week we're going to read the response and we're going to talk about how he deals with this. And he deals with it on two fronts. One, he confronts it with the rabbi but also he goes from the point of view of the king and says, that's lovely, but I had a dream. And the dream said there was a problem with my actions. So the person can ask the question is like, you invited the king, Rabbi Huda Alevi, you asked the king to invite a philosopher who you had no intention of confronting. That's a good question, we we'll deal with that as well. But for now, we've seen how the world that the philosopher puts on the table, how does he approach How does he approach our triangle? The God, he doesn't care about you, but he's perfect. Man, man has a purpose, but there's no dialogue here. The philosopher is using our language. He speaks about God, he speaks about creation, he speaks about purpose, but this isn't the world that we live in. That's not the world of Judaism. By seeing contrasts being expressed in a, almost a quasi-convincing way. You can imagine someone getting behind this structure. Like, that's a weird, and, and by the way, just to give you a contemporary parallel, there was a, uh, in the 2010s, there was a big atheist movement in the world. It was known as the, 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 the New Atheists. They were very militant, and eventually it died. I'm not a sociologist, I don't know why it died, but one of the reasons it might have died is because there's only a certain amount of yelling you could do not yelling, they were yelling at religious people, not obviously physically yelling at them, they were very polite and very articulate, and very gentlemanly. You had um, Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and Rich, uh, Hitchens. They were known as the four horsemen of atheism, like the apocalypse it was quite clever. Mm-hmm. But the point of it was that they were trying to, they, 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 they shook up the world about what they meant by God. There was a lot of good that was done through that, but eventually there's only a certain amount of no, you can do without giving a purpose. Like, okay, you don't believe in God. Excellent. Thank you. Now what? No, it's not my job. Well, guess what? If you dismantle everybody's worldview, you kind of have a bit of responsibility to offer them something in return, which is why you had culturally other things emerge. But there was another thing that became more popular as that time, as within that time, Stoicism became very popular. Stoicism, as well, is a way of looking at the world and it is a purposeful way of looking at the world. It talks about God. Not in the idea that God calls to you and you dove into God, but it has a worldview. Aristotelianism in certain circles became popular because it was an, a secular religion that gave a purpose and something to strive towards. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a Hellenistic um, philosophy that was very much developed and uh, um, cultivated by the Romans. You have Marcus Aurelius, you have Epictetus, you have these uh, big time, and in the modern world, you have, um, what's his name? John Holliday, I think his name is. Either way, he wrote a very famous book called The um, the Daily Stoic and he's, it, it, it's very popular and it's, it's a lot of wisdom in it, but it became a worldview for people because you need. Nature upholds a vacuum. You're going to choose a worldview. The question is, which worldview are you going to choose? Or you can deaden your desire to choose a worldview. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the philosopher gave us a god. the philosopher discussed man, and the philosopher discussed the world. And he said the relationship between all of these are there was no world that was created. This is a natural outgrowth of that, and the relationship between man and the world, we have our purpose. This is what you're supposed to do. And in a way, this is like akin to prophecy. It will start. You will start acting differently when you have that channel open. Yes. What was the relationship between God and the world? God, the world is just a natural emanation of God. It has always been here. So, with, with the purpose of trying to obtain active intellect, is it also just clarifying? Is, is the philosopher saying that by obtaining active intellect, you like kind of tapping into God? Yeah. I like, oh. As I said, you can you can use you can even use Jewish language by yeah. opening up the channels. When people when, when when mystics speak about the idea of you doing certain mitzvahs to open up the the shefa. It's the same sort of language. doesn't mean it's the same philosophy. Obviously, Rabbi Hood, our is opening up with this because he's showing us a almost like a a, a structure which he'll make use of. It's not going to negate it completely. Um, And so we're gonna discuss next week the King's rejection of this and why each stage, how would we respond? And and you know what, in the next last five minutes, I think because we we also have to deal, I'm gonna just speak briefly how would we respond about God not being perfect? Why did God create the world? Well, you yes, it's would to perfect line. Excellent. Uh, the, so to put it another way, if I have a game of chess, this is the way one of my uh, teachers put it, if I have a game of chess with God, and God just has his king, can he beat me? Yes. Hashem. I don't care how powerful he is. If he wants to play chess, he's got to play chess. If he wants to play magic chess, he can play magic chess. Aww. But if you play chess, you play chess. If I say God needs to play chess, am I using the word need in the same way of my bumba? No, I want bumba because I'm not lacking the taste of bumba. I wanna fulfill that need. If God chooses a state which requires something of that choice, that's not the same sort of need. If we say Hashem created the world because of chesed, the philosopher would say, yeah, I do chesed when I want to feel good. Yeah, but maybe we have a different conception of chesed. Chesed isn't because of a lack. Chesed is because of a desire to do good. When we say Hashem wants to give, we don't mean that because of a lacking. We mean that because of something what we mean by Hashem is good, that wants to give. How you, the terminology you use in relationship to these concepts really does matter that would be a response to saying God isn't perfect because you say he needs to create the world. Yeah, but when I say need, I may not mean what you mean when you say need. And when I say do good, I don't mean why I do good. When I do good, part of the reason I do good is probably to feel good about it because of a lacking of my insecurity. When I said Hashem does chesed, it means something else. My conception of chesed when I relate it to God may be something slightly more profound than just wanting to do good to feel gooey inside. So those are going to be the areas of the response. When we say that and that, that deals with the world and man's purpose in the world, we think revelation and the idea of Hashem communicating with us is real. And that's where we heard is going to develop that further. Thank you all so much for listening. And um I'm just going pause it.